Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Capital City Comrades. My name is Ethan Soderberg. I go by he, him pronouns. Hello, it's really nice to be back. My name is Jess. I use they, them, and I had a hell of a last couple months with everything, so I'm really glad to be doing this again. <laughs> yeah, it's good to be back. I released a couple solo episodes. I'm not sure if anyone had the chance to check them out, but they are on. I should check them out for sure. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, they're just some uh, readings I did of some like different poetry, but. Nice. Yes, I should. Yes, I should definitely listen to those. I don't always check back because I've been working so much and i'm on the go with my like spotify playlists and stuff so i just like back and forth it like all the time Mm. and i don't always check out our podcast even though it's important and i should more often um but yeah Yeah. it's good i would love to do readings of that myself i just don't know where i do them reading co right now so it'd be fitting (laughs) yeah that might actually be a good idea for for some episodes we could do in October, we could do some poetry reading of some horror. I can read the bells for everybody. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, speaking of that, we're talking about, yeah, speculative fiction. I'm excited. Yeah. So this is kind of a freeform conversation. Uh, I don't have a specific script or anything set up i just wanted to bounce some discussion topics off you so yeah um i always think that uh i guess like i i normally would go with something like defining defining what speculative fiction is basically like imagining imagining certain futures or what things would look like with specific story elements um i am a big fan of margaret atwood and margaret atwood um has kind of been a stickler for calling her work speculative fiction and not science fiction because science fiction has like monsters and rocket ships and laser guns and stuff like that but i don't know i guess uh I, I don't always feel the need to split hairs. It's just her stuff is good, and stuff with all of that is also good. And they both speculate on future scenarios. Yeah. But. Of course, there's also a subgenre of speculative fiction. It's um, alt history. That's a genre I'm quite fond of. It just imagines like alternative histories, like. Or alternative timelines, like how certain events could have changed uh, our current timeline. Like, say, like, uh, uh, during a certain war, if, like, one side that lost actually won, how that would change, yeah, was change things. Yes. I have a book 
published by Angry Robot that I, I liked the cover of it when I bought it. It's called uh, The United States of Japan. Uh, kind of the same thing, except Japan uh, starts with Pearl Harbor and then just kind of keeps going into invading the United States. Uh, it had a cool mecha on the cover, so I was like, this looks cool, but then I was also like, oh, alt history is really interesting, too. I have yet to read this, but talking about that, this may influence me to do so. Yeah, totally. I actually remember when that book first came out and everyone was excited about seeing the mecha on there. Um, yeah. I went to at a con called Angry Robot Books and they are pretty I think they're pretty relevant to the discussion because all of the stuff I've read by them have been very speculative and I strongly recommend reading all of the books of them that I've read uh, especially um, the book called Moxie Land by Lauren Bucus, uh, which imagines a future Cape Town where um, everybody is very, very linked to the internet and to the government by their cell phone, which is honestly just nonfiction now. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she, uh, uh, Lauren Bucus was a journalist for like 15 years or something like that. And she essentially took all of these very weird and at times extremely disturbing experiences that she did. And um, she basically put a narrative together of four different narrators who lead four different lives in this future Cape Town. And there's, like, biological, like, art sculptures that, like, freak out and attack people. And there's, like, the most genius part of the book is where the police release a virus to quell a riot. And the only way to like figure out if the virus is going to kill you or not is to turn yourself in and that is just it's harrowing and it's terrifying but i really really liked moxie land as a speculative fiction read it's tech some people split hairs and call it cyberpunk i can see why it's cyberpunk but in terms of like stuff in terms of like speculative books that are definitely like becoming real Moxie Land is the first one I thought of, and that book kind of put Angry Robot as a publisher on the map as well because it's great. Yeah, does that um, does that uh, is it like set in a world where the apartheid government still fell, or is that? She, she wrote the afterword with the intent of being like, this book is about post-apartheid stuff that is still very, very, very much going on in places like Cape Town today. And I think she kind of... There are elements of, like, racism in the book and stuff like that, especially to, like, kind of... Because the, I, a couple of the characters are a couple different... Uh, races as well mm -hmm. um and that kind of post-apartheid like idea it kind of like it's subtle but it does permeate like parts of the book and her point of wanting to say 
yeah, this is its post, but quote unquote, but it's still like happening and it still manifests in uh, modern government relations, unfortunately. I don't know a whole lot about uh, the politics of post apartheid. I more know about apartheid. I read K for Boy when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, yeah, it was a it was another thing that influenced me of like I mean like <laughs> as an American we're kind of fed a very narrow view sometimes of the world. So it's a good thing that I should do reading on for sure. Um and Moxie Land was a good uh like kind of hard sci fi um speculative kind of intro to that because I wanna know what she was talking about with some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first one that came to mind. What were you gonna say, sorry? Oh, I was just gonna say that that probably could be like a whole episode in itself, like about like South Africa, but um, yeah. Yes. Yep. There's still a lot of uh, racial tension there. It's a lot better than it was during the apartheid years, but it's there's still some things that need to be figured out there as there there are in many countries including ours so but um but yeah like uh speculative fiction uh touching on like real world issues is also really interesting obviously the the first big one to do that was um uh george orwell's 1984 talking about like uh the increased surveillance state and like increased uh, laws. Um, there's a common misconception that everything in it is like about like the the Soviet Union under Stalin, and well, that's um, a part of it. It was really commenting on like uh, increased surveillance state everywhere, including Britain and the. United States. The interesting thing about writing satire, satire I would say too coincides with speculative fiction a lot, like especially that book and like The Handmaid's Tale and like um, uh, The Power by Naomi Alderman is another one that comes to mind. Um, Because like, I mean like as a writer, I draw on my experiences from my life to write my characters and the situations that I put them in and various other situations I try to imagine and I've always been like really irritated by that like hard and fast like no this is about the USSR like it's like that's not the point of why he wrote it he was like hey he drew from it and was like hey there's some scary stuff going on here with the intent of being like hey this is totalitarian this can happen like anywhere Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I think Lauren Bucus with the Afterward Democracy Land said like this this book is possible it's just one totalitarian government away like it's not I don't know like I think that I think literature especially speculative literature looking at it in a broad scope of possibility is what makes it so poignant I guess to me anyways mm-hmm. totally. especially that book I love that book 1984 is still one of my favorites. 
Oh yeah, it's a it's a great book for sure. circles there are um certain books that will like take a fantastical premise and they will kind of make it like they'll kind of stretch it to its lengths um and kind of you know make it more about whatever the premise was than necessarily like talk about um like specific issues um but at the same time uh i think that even stuff like that depending on the author kind of inadvertently ends up um commenting on things um i read a novella called sleep donation by karen russell um which i loved and it is about humans brains start to go haywire um with certain chemicals in the brain and basically there's a pandemic of insomnia and in kind of a fantastical premise kind of way it's about a sleep donation company that uses sleep from other people to put it into you know people who really really need it and who are willing to pay for it um and um i read that during the beat like i think i was reading it around the time that i was getting my uh covid vaccine actually and that book was really good but it was really scary to read during an actual pandemic (laughs) because Mm -hmm. like like again i like i look like i like looking at that speculative stuff in a broad scope because i don't think karen russell meant for it to comment on covid but it accidentally did because she just kind of understood the state of the world and the hysteria that the characters in the book experience and that made it more poignant so i think age can kind of make speculative fiction better or worse as well (laughs) oh yeah totally totally kind of like uh moving over to like some the more like cinematic realm i think a great example of that is uh children of men the god who I i haven't seen it but i know what it's about yeah god who's the isn't it gerard butler uh, no, it's, uh, it's, uh, Clive Owen. Oh, okay. I don't, <laughs> I should, I should watch it. I've been told that it's good. Um, did you say that it hasn't aged well or that it has aged well? Um, I think it's aged very well. I just think it's seeming a little too real. I mean, obviously we have, oh. there hasn't been like, uh, uh, complete drop in infertility like there's the whole world hasn't become infertile like it has in that movie but there has been like mass immigration crises and like uh, increased like uh, police presences and like uh, more totalitarian crackdowns and more like uh, militarized um, police forces and yeah I mean like with uh, in terms of like that kind of stuff too like that um, some people might see it as something new but like um, 
I mean, that is something, too, that Phil K. Dick wrote a lot about. He kind mm-hmm. of expounded on that kind of stuff. And he didn't just do it with Man in the High Castle, either. Like, he did it with Minority Report. I haven't read the story of it, but... I've seen the movie. I like the movie. The movie freaked me out. I think it was the first dystopian thing I remember freaking me out. Um, and just, like, the problem of, like, you know, what what is it? Like, they, the things can see into the future, and that's what sentences people, I think, is what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know. Basically they, being uh, prosecuted for, like, mind crimes, yeah. Yes. Like, oh, wait, that has a problem. And as a young child, I watched this movie. And then it kind of clicked for me, and I was like, well, that's the point. And that's kind of how I got into yeah. that kind of mode. And then later in life, um, I think I was in college when I read A Scanner Darkly, and A mm-hmm. Scanner Darkly very, very much about um, one of the main characters who was a drug addict is working for the police, and he has like this like head-to-toe suit where he can cloak himself to become different people and that's a whole other like terrifying like the premise of that with like everything that happens in like modern everywhere too like that that book sank in like last year especially i was like oh man that's that's a lot to that's a lot to take in and phil k dick has been dead for how long he was he knew he just he had a good sense of that with his sci-fi well yeah it's also scanner darkly is also like a great like commentary on like how um how like freeing psychedelics can be but also how they can be used in like really nefarious ways to like uh control people like i don't know i don't know how many listeners are aware but um lsd was actually introduced um to the united states as like part of a mind control program by the cia called uh mk ultra and it was basically used to like try and like uh get get people to um confess to like uh certain crimes or to like uh do certain things it uh, ended up not being that successful, but it uh, scarred a lot of people for a long time. And it this was something that was happening uh, late 40s, early 50s, and it didn't get like uh, released to the public until like the late 70s. And this, but it's something that was uh, speculated on a lot, and it's like that also one of the main inspirations for like a scanner darkly this whole project yeah well the other the other thing that's particularly scary about it like in hindsight too now that like i mean i've known plenty of friends who have done psychedelics stuff like that um and uh the whole thing that my friends have been like if you ever want to try psychedelics with us um it's good for us to be a safe good like space for you especially Mm -hmm. if you start like freaking out and um when i thought about that and thinking about like the u.s just being like here just try this is terrifying because like i i'm on two different mental health medications anyways 
Um, and just the idea of the government, like, screwing with people in that way is so, so unbelievably horrible and inhumane. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it has a lot of weight to it mm-hmm. still today. Yeah. Have you seen the movie? Yes, um... Probably like one of the last, uh, last um, big studio movies to use uh, rotoscoping, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I mean, I really like cartoons um, and rotoscoping. Rotoscoping is weird. It's kind of uncanny valley, especially like because there are a lot of like big name actors in that movie. Yeah. Um, I watched the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings when I was a child because mm-hmm. I like Lord of the Rings a lot and like I had seen the Peter Jackson ones and then I was introduced to rotoscoping which at the time was very surreal and creepy and his movies don't really follow a narrative so initially when I watched it I was like oh this is weird but then as it kind of went along it um and it elaborated on all of the stuff we were just talking about with like MK Ultra mass surveillance, etc. Um, the trippiness kind of became really like appealing way to tell the story because it was already a trippy story about drugs and kind of like not having control over that stuff. Mm-hmm. So by the end of the movie, when I watched it, the rotoscoping actually really, really impacted it as a good watch because it was just so. It's just a trippy, weird movie, and I like the book and I like the movie. They're both pretty equal to me, so yeah, definitely go watch or read those. Yeah, the movie uh, Keanu Reeves is in it. Winona Ryder. Uh, isn't Woody Harrelson's in it too, right? Woody Harrelson, Robert Downey Jr. is in it. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. I'd have to look it up. Okay. Um, seeing them all like rotoscoped is interesting <laughs> yeah excuse me you mentioned um the ralph bakshi uh lord of the rings i was actually watching a really good video essay on it oh, um really? by uh folding ideas it's like he's like oh, yeah, uh that's right you shared a, shared a video of his I, I liked his editing a lot i'll have to watch that yeah it's it's a it's a bit of a watch. It's over an hour, but it's it's worth it. It's it's interesting, for sure. Um, he he talks about it it and like compares it to like uh, Jackson's like take on the material and stuff too, which is interesting. But um, yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, the last um speculative fiction uh, story I w- read was um, Bring the Jubilee, um, which is like an alternate history. Um, God. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember when it was uh, published. It was sometime in the 1950s, but I just read it recently um yeah 1953 ward Moore, but it's uh it's basically um 
in alternate history if that imagines what would have happened if the Confederate States of America won the American Civil War. Oh, that is interesting. And uh, imagines like the kind of like the reverse of what happened um, during the Reconstruction era and like the um, the accurate timeline where instead of like the North prospering after the war in the South kind of like having um, a bad a bad um, couple decades it's like the opposite the South ends up prospering and the northern part of the country ends up like becoming like impoverished and like really like uh, segregated and Wow. I should really read that. That sounds really good. Like, I mean, (laughs) that's the other thing with speculative fiction where I'm just like, wow, that sounds really scary. Therefore, I'm going to read it. (laughs) I find that, like, I come back more and more to that as, like, the scarier and more real it sounds, the more I'm like, oh, yeah, this person was trying to make some, like, really good points with this fictional... And that is such a broad setting, too. That's, like, mm-hmm. all across the country and, like, all that yeah. research that they probably had to put into that setting or the and the idea of it and then sitting down and, like, speculating, like, what if this, what if this as well. Yeah. Um, all right, bring the Jubilee. Cool. Yeah, the um, Game of Thrones guys tried to do... It wasn't based on bring the Jubilee, but it had a similar premise they tried to do like um uh not uh george rr R. martin the guys that did the show um db D- oh, okay. okay. D. weiss and uh whatever the other guy's name yeah. is but about like um what if the confederacy had won the civil war and like there's it was like two separate like uh the United States did become like two separate countries or whatever, but they, they kind of like the way they announced it was kind of like, um, ham fisted and kind of like insensitive. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Because they like, uh, said, uh, like, Oh, this is a world where slavery exists still and like isn't that interesting it's, it's like maybe you could have like actual real modern times yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah. um okay. but uh yeah they they scrapped that um i think the main reason being that uh the final season of game of thrones like flopped right on its face but I um I will admit, as a person who likes fiction, I have actually never watched or read Game of Thrones, but I do want to read it eventually for sure. Um, I always tell people because I'm I, I like manga. I like you know like I like dark fantasy specifically, and I'm very into uh, the manga Berserk by Kentaro Miura. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that has kind of always been <laughs> my Game of Thrones. <laughs> 
Because it's, it's, I've been told it's similar by people who have enjoyed both as well. I'd say Berserk is better, but I don't know if that's too much of a hot take, but... I'm not sure, because I, like I said, I probably, I mean, like I said, I'm more into the, like, for me, it's, like, taste, too. Like, it's, subjectively, I'm more into the horror setting than the, like, you know, conquests and kings kind of thing. And yeah. I know that the, I'm going to sound like such such a fool saying this, but the the white Darth Maul looking guys in that show are, like, the big scary, but... All of Kentaro Mira's monsters are, they're always unique, they're always body horror, they're really scary, they're really gross, and I think I like that and prefer that in general as like a, you know, look at how horrific this is, this is what Guts has to deal with right now, so, um, yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, and I mean like, um, Berserk has more like a generalized, um, like kind of like a medieval European based setting. Um, Game of Thrones is obviously at times trying to go for like specific parallels to actual like medieval Europe. Like there's um, uh, there's this uh big like uh, like uh, expansive religion called like the Sparrows, which is obviously like based off like the medieval catholic church and like yeah, I was gonna say. okay and uh obviously like some other like big like historical parallels with like battles and stuff but um i think the big thing with berserk for me too that puts it above like game of thrones um, maybe not so much the book, but definitely the series. Um, I think both, both Berserk and Game of Thrones, uh, use sexual, sexual assault or sexual abuse as plot points, but I think, but I think Berserk did it in a way that showed it as, like, horrifying and grotesque where Game of Thrones was sometimes pretty exploitative with it. Yeah, I was going to oh. say it's more for, like, shock value and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, there are parts of Berserk where I'm just like, well, I don't really know why this is sexual. I There, there are certain, like, monsters and stuff that just, like, you know, they just have, like, sexual organs as, like, part of their, like, teeth or their arms or whatever and stuff like that. Um, and it's always kind of, like, there as kind of, like, a threat of, like, I don't know, if anything, it's, like, a very psychological manifestation of, I mean, like, Antara Mira writes trauma very, very well. Mm. Um, all of, he, he screws with all of his characters in one way, shape, or form, but he, he uses it as in in later berserk specifically he uses it as like um a plot point to get guts to trust people again like it is it is like beautiful writing because it's just like you you sit down with these characters for like five volumes before guts is actually like hey 
I can be vulnerable to people even though I have this cool demon armor and my great sword that I can rip through scary monsters with and just like seeing him like sit down on a beach with Shiriki and talk about like trust and loss and like what their future means and what being alive means it's really beautiful it's really really good um and uh i i guess i don't know if game of thrones really has any of that i don't know if it's just like oh here's this really edgy scene and then doesn't elaborate on it but berserk is very tender for it Mm -hmm. being very scary i will say yeah i I was just going to say, I think Game of Thrones tried to be tender at tender at points, but I think it some of it just not a, a lot of it just didn't just didn't work out. And uh, I think that's. Uh, part of that's also probably the danger of like um holding like a franchise probably to impossible standards like everyone thought like game of thrones was gonna nail the landing but i heard people that were like kind of done with the show even before like the the final season like it just didn't like live up to their expectations especially from people that have read the books but oh yeah he he hasn't even finished the last book has he i'm not even sure he ever will to be honest i mean that's uh that's actually the most tragic part of uh berserk actually is uh kentaro mira died in may mm-hmm. and i was pretty distraught i will say but at the same time just the legacy that berserk has left for people is like our this community of like berserk fans has so much fervor for it and it never even was finished um so i guess i would rather like he he wrote it and didn't finish it because he gave us so much good than him like not writing at all or finishing it or whatever but yeah, I don't know. Um, it was sad, but at the same time, like, uh, it's what is there is very good. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's the. And I mean, I suppose that's speculative too. The most raw form of speculative fiction could even be fan fiction, I suppose. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, it's. Uh... Yeah, I don't know. I like. I like talking about that kind of stuff because it kind of, like I said, speculative is very broad. It's very like, mm-hmm. like you know, you can ascribe it to certain things, and uh, you know, it can. But it's always good. I think it's always good to like come up with a really imaginative premise and just kind of like go with it and try to connect it to like real stuff as much as you can. Um, I'd like to, even though I'm a little bit more into, like, 
I guess where I'm at with writing right now, I'm very much into, like, uh, just trying to make my characters better and make them, like, have good interactions and good dialogue and good descriptions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, looking at speculative authors, like I said, I like Margaret Atwood a lot. Um, looking at speculative authors is rather daunting as, like, a, a, a novice writer, but at the same time, it is very... It's very much a goal I want to do because um, I guess just with um, just the last couple of years, like, I mean, way before, there's been awful stuff that's been going on throughout the world always. But, like, mm-hmm. I think a lot more people are kind of understanding those themes since, like, the 2016 election happened and since, like, um, I don't know, just with, like, all of the stuff that happened with, like, that has always happened, but was in the media eye with, like, police brutality and stuff, I think that people who write fiction, like myself, and that is kind of maybe their first exposure to it, or their first, uh, you know, like, experience, like, writing about that, because it's so fresh and it's so pervasive in our world right now, or our country specifically, but in the world, too. Um, that I'm really excited to see what's going to come next in terms of, like, what people are going to come up with in the future. Because, um, I don't know. I mean, I know I know a lot of very, uh, both passionate and talented people. So, I'm, I want to get there eventually, too. But, uh, you know, it'll, it'll take some work, but... Yeah. It's always it's always something I go back to of like the what ifs and that is the most that kind of is writing in a way. <laughs> yeah, tragedy uh, definitely uh, helps create like really great art for sure. Mm-hmm. Or even like just helping you cope with like certain things. It's not speculative, but <laughs> at the beginning of the pandemic when things were starting to get really out of control. Um, I, <laughs> I read Uzumaki by Junji Ito, and, um, which is very much about, like, like, Junji Ito takes a very simple premise and then makes uh-huh. it, uh, basically turn into, like, hysteria, and that is something that helped me cope with the pandemic a lot of, like, Hey, this whole situation sucks, but at least I'm not dealing with like slug people and helicopter things. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. It's I think it's a it's a good comfort for a lot of people. Yeah. But yeah, for sure. Sorry, I just what needed else? to charge my charge my laptop it's all good i figured there was um figured you were just moving around um i'm trying to think were are there anything is there anything off the top of your head that you would say is speculative but is non-fiction oh god that's a really good question um I don't know if it's uh, non. It's technically not nonfiction, but 
a lot of the speculative evolution stuff, like a lot of the stuff like Dougal Dixon, uh, the paleontologist and like historian does with like uh, speculative like uh, convergent like evolutions like. Is that the person that wrote Man After Man, or is that a different Yes, ma- he wrote. He wrote Man After Man, um, Life After Man. Um, if dinosaurs were alive today, uh, the new dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Is really oh. In that case, then too, I suppose Jurassic Park is considered. <laughs> speculative fiction too oh for uh, sure yeah uh the, i remember i read the book in high school um i had seen the movie first and i was like wow okay this is a classic you know whatever for a reason definitely it's but the book is more of a thriller and it's a lot it's both a lot more like has to do with like mathematical probability of certain things happening so there's in terms of the speculative element of the book there's almost like a, like michael Crichton tried to make like scientific data for like what could happen and my small teenager english brain was like okay i kind of get it um i'd like to refresh it now but the other thing at the time that was more visceral that struck out to me was that it was like it was so full of hope at the beginning of like, oh, this theme park. And then it was very gory and violent for like the rest. Like the latter half of the book is very, very grotesque. Um, and uh, I think that change up is a very good like way to be like, hey, maybe we shouldn't dabble in this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he kind of... Uh... You could argue he kind of repeated himself, too, with Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton, because he did, like, Westworld before Jurassic Park, which is... Okay, I did not know that. The the original movie, not the HBO show, which it's... That is is interesting. I had actually seen... um, I saw the original movie um, when I was at, like, a... I was very sleep-deprived at a sleepover when I was in high school where a bunch of my friends, like, stayed up and was like, this is weird, let's watch it. And I was was very enraptured by it because I was just like, it's kind of a weird, trippy, kind of quiet, kind of spooky movie anyways. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I didn't expect to be creeped out by this cowboy, but here we are. Um, That's interesting. I didn't know that he wrote it, though, because I I like the original movie, and I was like kind of raised an eyebrow when I found out that they were like, I was like, they're making this into like a show, I guess. Alrighty. I haven't seen a new show, but I like the original movie a lot. The show's much more like a, like a heady, like sci-fi show than like a, like a sci-fi thriller like the movie is, but, um, Uh, the Yul Brenner character, the, the cowboy, like it, (laughs) there's actually like, in the first season, there's actually, um, like, a model cowboy that's supposed to look like Yule Brenner in, like, a storage unit or whatever okay. is, like, a little Easter egg or whatnot. Um, a, a sly nod to that. Okay, cool. But, 
Yeah, um, it's basically like the same idea. Jurassic Park, like uh, super advanced, like theme park things go wrong sort of thing. And I don't know if you've heard this news, but um, uh, the Disney parks are actually thinking about experimenting with like walking, like walking, like artificial like animatronics or whatever it's like <laughs> that's terrifying kind of like the exact thing like uh the west world was trying to warn against but mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean yeah that's terrifying i didn't know that that is that scares the shit out of me yeah um i do i do joke about it but i also am very afraid of i mean call me a luddite but like Speculative technology, specifically like androids and synthetics, are very, very scary to me. Um, especially if they're animatronics too. Ugh, ugh. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, I don't know. Like I would have, like I probably would have been a Blade Runner. Admittedly, I know that's not the point of the movie, but I'd be like, no, these things are too scary. Um, but. That's kind of the vibe too I got from Westworld is it's more like Blade Runnery where it's kind of speculating of like these are beings that are like alive and have sentience and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what what does that ethically mean? And that's very interesting too. Oh, while we're on the topic of theme parks as well, it's not as much like um it's not as much about like hard like robots and like um you know, like, whatever kind of artificial intelligence kind of stuff. But there is a collection that I have of short stories that are considered speculative as well uh, by George Saunders. And George Saunders wrote this collection. It's called Civil Warland and Bad Decline, one of my favorite books. Um, And they are all about weird, screwed-up, like, um, amusement parks or amusement park-related stories where he he was heralded as like a writer's writer when I was in college and I went for my BFA and did my capstone in creative writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody was like, you have to read George Saunders if you're going to be a writer. And I was like, okay, and that was one of my favorite writers. <laughs> um, but all of his stories, the speculative nature of all of his stories are super interesting because they, um, they're absurd. They're like funny and a very absurd kind of tall tale like Kurt Vonnegut, like Mark Twain even kind of way. Mm-hmm. And he's definitely influenced by both of them. But they're like absurd in a way that they're also believable. Like that's and that's the scary thing about like the the uh animatronic thing is that like people are just like, you know what? This is more money for us. It's maybe a bad idea, but we don't care. And that's kind of what reading Civil Warland and Bad Decline is about, because it's usually from the point of view of an employee who is working at one of those things. Um, so it's very, it's very, it's very good. Please read George Saunders. He is a genius. Yeah. Um, yeah, but he he has a lot of speculative stuff too. That's like, it's absurd, but it's believable at the same time, and it just rides that line in a really slick way, I think. Okay. 
Have you read um any of uh, Matt Ruff at all? No, um, I Matt. You said Matt Roth, R O T H. No, uh, Ruff, uh, R U F F. No, I have not. I'm gonna look him up and see if I have. I recognize any of his his stuff. Mm-hmm. Um. I was thinking Roth, but then I was like, oh, that's Philip Roth. Philip Roth wrote speculative fiction about, like, Nazism coming to America as well. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what it's called. I just know that that's what it's about. Oh, this guy wrote uh, Lovecraft Country. Yes. Yes, I've heard of Lovecraft Country. I have not seen it, but... um, Uh, The book book is better than the show, for sure. Okay. Um, Have you Yes. Um, I I enjoyed the show up to an extent. Uh, I didn't like... The show definitely ended up being more misanthropic than the book, which I... Interesting. Was it? Yeah, that's an interesting thing in terms of thinking about, like, you know, like, Speculative fiction, to me, too, always seems to have, like, a point, like, a very, like, specific kind of point that, like, Orwell, Bucus, Saunders, Ruff, all of those guys, gals, everybody, everybody who was great at that, um, you know, it always had, like, a point. It always yeah. goes somewhere. Um, and the point changing from adaptation to adaptation is very interesting to me. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. I want now, I don't, <laughs> I want to know why, but I also don't want to do like <laughs> spoiler cast. Um, but all right, Lovecraft Country book. Because I know yeah. that that's kind of like, the thing with that is I thought it kind of intersected like, racism in america to like eldritch horror kind of stuff it does yeah yeah that's the whole whole idea of it basically um uh matt the protagonist is is um it takes place in the 1950s the protagonist is a black korean war vet um who discovers he has like familial connections to like this um like cult that basically worships like the great old ones or whatever but okay. but kind of like uh but yeah just like the whole idea of uh white supremacy in the United States being connected to um uh, Eldritch, um, abominations and stuff, which like the whole thing there is obviously connecting on the fact that, um, Lovecraft himself was a white supremacist. He's a fantastic horror writer, but he was pretty vile in some of his beliefs, especially towards, um, uh, African-American people for sure. Story. 
Um, but I had a, I used to have a big collection, and my conscience kind of sold it to a half price books because I was like, I I like cosmic horror. Cosmic horror is interesting. Um, I like that it is a genre that didn't become like maybe this racist fever dream that Lovecraft wanted it to be. Um, in fact, one of my favorite sources of media is uh, Welcome to Night Vale. I'm a very, very big fan of Welcome to Night Vale. It's a mm-hmm. podcast about uh, a town where eldritch stuff is normal, and that's it's kind of like a eldritch like prairie home companion, essentially. Right. Um, and it's it's so cool. It's very accepting. It's very like it has a lot of good queer uh, people of color. Um, there's newer character, there's a newer non-binary character who is very fun to listen to. Um, just, like, it's so, it makes me happy that, like, the, like, fear of the unknown, which, I mean, that's pretty much as speculative as it gets, um, turned into something that's shockingly wholesome. Like, Night Vale is the only thing that is both, like, scares the shit out of me, but is also very wholesome. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... Um, I, I like that people like Matt Ruff or like Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner who wrote Night Vale are kind of expressing how that's a cool mode of telling a story with cosmic horror, but at the same time they're like, yeah, we're not, we're not giving this the, (laughs) the Lovecraft, you know, like fish people treatment, (laughs) uh, because yeah, a lot of. A lot of his racism did permeate his stories, too. I think that's what The Shadow of Innsmouth is about, is him being afraid of um, mixed-race children. And I'm like... I I had it... I was interested in it because of the, the monsters and things, but if that's the point, no! Absolutely not. Um, but yeah... Well, even, like, uh, Call of Cthulhu, like, there's the whole, like, um, section about, like, uh, the worshippers being, like, uh, dark-skinned or whatever. Yes, yes. It's very much like the very racist, like, colonization, like, thinking about, like, other countries as, like, dark, secret, forbidden places when it's, like... No, like, people have lived there for literally millions of years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's always... The more I read and the more I try to expand my worldview, I'm just like, why did I, like, enjoy some of this at one point in time? Well, it's because I wasn't looking at it critically. <laughs> so... Yeah. Well, no, I think there's definitely a lot of Lovecraft writing and a lot of his techniques are... Are, are good and definitely inspired a lot of other fiction. It's just, uh, you, you do have to look at the, his like, uh, racial beliefs with like a critical eye and don't just like throw them yeah. under the rug. Yeah. I mean, like that was kind of the whole thing with like literary, like when I did literary theory in college and that was kind of an interesting part of, uh, looking at where somebody is coming from and then also looking at the point they're trying to make because they don't they don't always coincide especially with um like um i think ray bradbury is actually a very very good example of that 
Um, because he essentially wrote Fahrenheit 451 with his intent of being like, don't exclusively watch TV and have brain rot, like, experience different forms of media. But because of the, like, book-burning aspect of it, it became kind of this, like, heralded as this, like, anti-censorship book. And it became something that he didn't even intend it to be, which I think is very interesting as well. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of the adaptations, too, have definitely leaned hard on it being like a anti-censorship narrative for sure. I found out that there was a new, um, a new Fahrenheit 451 that I like just completely like went under my radar. I don't remember what his name, what the main guy's name is. Uh, it's um, uh, Michael B. Jordan played. Yes. Thank you. Um, I was going to say the guy who played Killmonger. In, yes. Well, yeah, and it definitely has, like, more like a, like a 21st century, like, lens on, on things. Like, there's definitely, like, the whole idea of, like, um, like, um, uh, like, screen media, like, being used to replace, like, uh, literature and everything. Yeah. And uh, saying, like, and the firemen saying, like, oh, they're not, like, uh, they're not, like, uh, destroying literature. They're just, like, putting it on, like, the cloud. You don't need, like, the books. And Yeah, and, I mean, they don't got to burn the books. They just remove them. That's why, like, Rage Against the Machine wrote that lyric and was so poignant with that kind of stuff, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's scary that it's just like it's not not as aggressive that you think. It's like that kind of totalitarian idea is a lot more like quiet and insidious than uh, you know a lot of people think of in that way. Um, but that's interesting too with the cloud because that is yeah that's a very like modern thing where it's just like you didn't really think of it, and I'm. Ray Bradbury didn't know about Apple at the time, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's good. I, I'm glad that that was featured as a component of the. Is it a movie or is it a show? It's it's a movie. Um, it's, okay. it's pretty good. I have some problems with it, but overall I think it's pretty good. Uh, cool. The other, like, big name in it is... Um, uh, Michael Shannon, which is kind of funny because it's like two Michaels, but, um, the Michael. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, wow. Michael Shannon. Okay. Gotcha. He plays, um, Beatty in it. So. Okay. Um, I like, he, he's always been very intense in the stuff that I've seen. I mean, I really like, I really like, he was in Knives Out, wasn't he? Yes. 
I really, really liked him in Knives Out. He was the he was the brother with the cane in that. Yeah, he was. A, that's a good movie too. <laughs> yeah. Um, He's also um he was also fantastic on Boardwalk Empire. He was kind of like played an overzealous like prohibition agent on that. He was. Oh, really? Yeah. I haven't watched that, but I've heard that's one of those shows, shows that I've only heard like yes, good, good things about. Um, yeah. I'm trying. Oh, I remember what I was gonna talk about. Um, in terms of like speculative nonfiction and kind of like, I know it's like a Facebook quote, but um, I'm also a big fan of like Carl Sagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carl Sagan. Oh, here it is. Literally old. Literally all of these at arm's reach. Um, Carl Sagan writing um, what it, The Demon Haunted World. Um, and there was a... I don't know if I'm going to be able to find the quote, but when you said we were doing the speculative fiction one, I wanted to be able to find, uh, find the one quote and read it because it had... A, had some stuff to do with like speculation because he it's the quote where he's basically like i'm really afraid of a future america where people don't think about science and people don't value um, skepticism and um use it tactfully in like the way that they should because like it's good to i don't know just like not, e- not even, like, just be strictly skeptical, but, like, think of, like, the ways around which, you know, you know, the, how these problems affect everybody. And I think with speculative stuff, I think it's, uh, I like thinking about those big, the big questions that, like, affect everybody. Uh, that's why I wanted to read the, what was it, before the Jubilee? Bring the Jubilee. Bring the Jubilee, yes, because that... That seems like it has incredible scope to it, and I think that scope does that. Um, and with, I can't find that quote, but um, it's a gro- good quote. Just look up Carl Sagan uh, science quote. <laughs> I'm sure people will find it, listeners. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. I have like that. Um, I have a book called "100 Skills You'll Need for the End of the World." Um, and it's not strictly like this is how it's going to end and this is how everybody's going to survive it. Um, it's just like, it's honestly kind of like a coffee table book that um, I found and I thought it was kind of like a joke at first. But then I was like, actually, wait, this is kind of a fun nonfiction book in a way because it's just like thinking about knitting and writing and irrigation and like just like metallurgy and stuff like that mm-hmm. too. Um, and, uh, I try not to think about that stuff too much because it freaks me out, but I think that book offered a little bit of closure to me (laughs) for my, like, fears of, like, civilization collapse and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I like books like that a lot, too, where it's just, like, I mean, even, like, video games do that in a way where it's kind Mm -hmm. of like a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. I mean, you don't get more tongue-in-cheek than, like, Fallout. Just kind of like Fallout, uh, Bioshock for sure. Yes, especially for um, sure. um, especially Bioshock Infinite. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And 
whole the whole thing that was such a big it was kind of a joke in three but it was kind of a prescient joke of how like like mccarthyism essentially survives like the nuclear holocaust <laughs> like there's guys that are like we should worship the commonwealth and down with communism and it's like you're like looking around at like mounds of burning garbage and scary mm-hmm. um yeah i i think there's a lot of like good media that like um you know you can especially with fallout being such like a choice driven story experience um that it's just like you can think of there's so much room for speculation because you can do like the the follow games i like anyways um i know some more of them are kind of rigid with the plot but like um you can kind of go down these paths that all have their own kind of version of like social satire to it Mm -hmm. um especially with like three and like you know there's always like a moral gray with all of the factions, especially in Fallout New Vegas. Like Fallout New Vegas was very, very faction oriented, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, like going way, way far into like you know what is the fate of the Hoover Dam and therefore all of the water in this dry desert area, um, and you know, kind of building like because that game is so focused on exploring all of the people you like the hundreds of NPCs that you. Um, but yeah, I think that, uh, I like Fallout because of how it elaborates on speculative fiction a lot, because it forces you to interact with the fiction. Yeah, and it definitely, uh, one of the really interesting parts of it is it definitely, like, um, talks about how, like, um, nostalgia and, like, uh, worship of, uh, past eras like definitely uh survives catastrophe and how that can be like a good thing or how it can be like a really bad thing like um like it definitely uh it definitely predicted how much like uh post world war 2 fascist would like um like adapt the idea of like worship of like the Roman empire for sure Mm -hmm. with like Caesar's legion and or like uh, how people still kind of worship this um, mostly like fictionalized uh, view of like uh, um, westward expansion and western towns and like the myth of the cowboy and Mm. stuff i know that i'm sure that some of it is like tongue-in-cheek for like aesthetic purposes but at the same time that's actually a really good point that i've never thought about with that game that Mm -hmm. is really interesting Uh uh-huh yeah because there's like the whole i mean like i said before the whole point it's like a revenge story too, but like more the point of point fallout is to see what's out there and explore like stuff you didn't, you know, that's on the map, but there's no marker for it. And there's not a marker for like 95% of the map in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's actually, Oh man, that's a really good point. Actually. I've never thought of it like that before. Yeah. Um, have you ever, uh, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was just, I 
Have you ever heard of uh, the the Hearts of Iron games? Hmm. I have not. What are those? They're like war strategy games, but um, the fourth game has uh, two two like uh, alternate history campaigns that are pretty interesting. One called like Kaiserreich, which imagines like the the German Empire winning World War One and as a result like um a lot a lot of countries um move like um move like leftward um which is really interesting. Like a group of like a socialists called like the syndical syndicalist um rise up and uh like a northern northern europe and eventually like north america which is and then there's another one called um new order which is like uh like man in the high castle or united states of japan um, imagines like um the axis during world war Two being like successful and winning the war and how that changes like um like global politics and everything that sounds really cool i really want to look at those on steam and see if i can play them yeah Uh, i mean in terms i mean it doesn't even have to be like a far out future thing like i think um like i know like the civilization games are kind of like that too like civilization is like I know that there. I know Civ Five specifically is about like reimagining, like you know, you you like develop the world as not mm-hmm. like a globe where you can. I know that there's like there's like multiplayer modes where you pick a specific country and you influence certain things and you influence your neighbors and stuff like that. Say you pick like you know like uh, Australia or Britain or whatever, mm-hmm. and you kind of like influence everybody around there. And, uh, yeah, there's different, obviously, like, different routes and stuff that you can take that, like, you know, didn't happen. And then you can, like, I know one of my friends is super, super into Civ Five, so I've never played it, but I know about it. Um, yeah, like, just, like, spreading, like, specific religions or, like, spreading, like, you know, ironworks or crops or, you know, any yeah. kind of thing. Um, I know disease is a component of it as well. Um... Yeah, I mean that's that's another example that I immediately thought of too. Oh, speaking like, of uh, speaking of disease, what's that? Uh, I think it may have been a flash game, so I'm not even sure if it's even that readily available anymore. But pandemic, I pandemic, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. That's yeah. That's uh, to the uninitiated. That's a a game where you are a virus. And you uh, expand the infection throughout the world until you obliterate humanity, basically. Uh-huh. Um, oh, I haven't thought about pandemic for a hot minute, but that's really scary in COVID times. Uh, yeah, it may be triggering to uh, some yeah. people to play that right now, but I think it's another yeah. good example of like the expansion of like speculative narratives and like uh mediums other than literature for sure the um the the difficulties influence
influenced by how fast the AI develops a vaccine against you. I know that mm-hmm. is a big component of the game. And um, there's a part of me that, I mean, like I said, I like Carl Sagan. That's like, whoa, like world embracing of science. That's super, super. Um, it's like part of like, you know, if you lose, that ends up being the point that you take away from the game. But, uh, yeah, gosh, I haven't thought about Pandemic for a while. Um, yeah, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't play it now. Uh, but in case, like, I ever would in the future and just kind of, like, look back at COVID and then look forward and be like, this is interesting. <laughs> what are some, what are some other, like, uh, as far as, like, uh, film and TV, what do you think are some other, like, really good speculative? I'm trying to think of some other ones. I can look over to my shelf. Um, I mean, like, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Like, I, I love anime. I'm very into, like, uh, cyberpunk uh, stuff and, like, hard, like, out there space stuff and robots and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I guess, like, in terms of just, like, looking at my shelf, I think there's a lot of anime that can definitely be called under that category. Oh, yeah, um, what's the, say... what's the one, God, what's the one where, um, it's the, the UK ended up, uh, still with, uh, majority control of, like, um, North America, because, like, the... The Continental Army was, like, betrayed by, like, Benjamin Franklin or whatever, and there's, like, the whole, like, thing about, like, the the new, like, uh, North America, like, uh, invading Japan or whatever. I'm trying to... I'm trying to remember, because that sounds very familiar, but I have not seen it. Um, I should I probably just, like, the U.S. invading Japan and... <laughs> um, but I guess the main, the one that I was going to say with anime is Akira. Oh, yeah, for um, sure. <laughs> everybody listening, please watch Akira. <laughs> um, that movie, that movie came out in 1988. And uh, that was six years before I was, I was conceived. And uh, it's still, I mean, like, I can still see, like, parts of it happening. Maybe not the metaphysical, like, children with psychic powers thing. But one of the most interesting parts about Akira barely gets talked about by anybody, and that is the components of, like, nationalism. There's a kind of quiet theme of nationalism that runs throughout that movie. Um, And it's not... It doesn't really even necessarily say nationalism is good, nationalism is bad. It influences the character's decisions, and it influences the fact that the goal of the movie is to have the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, which have now passed without psychic children or motorbikes. Um, And uh, I, I think that is a very interesting, like, speculative idea, too, because, like, no matter how fantastical like the premise is or no no matter how far like the technology goes in the movie where they like literally preserve a consciousness like brain in like ice and stuff like that but like any of the body horror stuff too um 
but like that that very like human component of like society gone awry because of um, adherence to a specific idea is a really good speculative part of the Kira that I think makes the story the rest of the story work really really well yeah. as well. So I would say, yeah, a lot of a lot of anime and a lot of sci-fi anime specifically. Um, yeah. Akira, Cowboy Bebop, Evangelion, uh, Psycho Pass, Psycho Pass in particular, uh, Ghost in the Shell. Um, I know that there's a show called Lost Exile that I watched a long time ago, but don't really remember very well. Um, that's like kind of steampunk, kind of World War II-ish. Um, I don't know, I mean, any of the Miyazaki movies, too, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of his very much like anti-war sentiment in like even even stuff like Nausicaa where he was like, hey, this is a really big ecological disaster. Guess who did it? Us. Um, so yeah, I would definitely say like lots of anime. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Uh, I'm going to talk about video games. Mass Effect. I mean, Mass Effect deals with space racism between like. Um, different alien races, kind of along mm-hmm. the same lines of Akira, where that that theme is still there, even though you're in a far out like space setting. Uh, I'm scratching my head. I'm trying to think of what other ones are. I just um yeah saw the that new movie out recently, uh, Reminiscence, with the new Hugh Jackman movie. That was yeah, that's right. Pretty what was interesting. That about? Um. It's like uh it's like uh living out your memories through like technology or whatever but the setting is like um Miami after the after extensive like uh climate change global warming has like uh pretty much like sunk half the city which is interesting really okay. interesting yeah and what that would, and how like uh, society would develop after like um, post like climate crisis, which may be coming. But uh, say, that's pretty that's pretty scary. I didn't know it was about that, but that's good that it's about that. It's about something prescient. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I would say. Yeah, there's plenty. I mean, like, fiction is like the, like, books, literature, like physical paper books or audiobooks or comic books. Um, well, I was going to say maybe comic books, too, because even, like, I know that people consider even, like, Watchmen speculative just because it's more about, like, would superheroes be actually really shitty people if that was a big component of society and mm-hmm. kind of the whole celebrity image and you know like what what would their psychology look like stuff like that so i think have you watched the um watchman show at all i haven't doesn't it take place after the events of the comic yes it takes place in uh it takes place in that universe's version of 2016 it's really I should watch it. I like yeah. Watchmen a lot. I think overall I like V for Vendetta a little bit more, which is also very, very good speculative fiction. Yeah. Um, v for 
Vengeance. Super Vendetta was really scary when I reread it because there's a passage about making Britain great again, and I put it on my Instagram, and I was like, look, look at this, it's terrifying. Um, well, yeah, it's obviously not just rampant nationalism is definitely, um, especially like ethno-nationalism is a big problem in the UK as well as like yeah. the United States, so... Alan Moore was pretty on the money with that. Um, he's a he's a comrade, by the way. So that's oh really? Okay. Cool. Yeah, he's definitely a he's definitely a socialist for sure. But you want to talk about drugs? <laughs> he was he made a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He, that's interesting. I didn't know that about him, but I mean, it it makes sense with the. I mean, just like I said, I love you for I adore it. Um, Watchmen is also very good. Um, but for me, yeah, both of those, I guess, just because um, they have, well, Watchmen more so, because they have fantastic premises, but, I mean, even then they touch on, like, the comedian, like, they all touch on something different. Like, the comedian touches on, like, American war crimes, like Dr. Manhattan. It's like a kind of a manifestation of, like, nuclear pursuits and... Uh, You've heard the whole backstory, right, that he wanted to use, like, lesser-known, like, DC characters, but DC wouldn't, like, loan them out to him, so he made up, like, characters loosely based on, like, DC characters, like how, like, uh, like how, like, uh, the, um, Rorschach is loosely based on, like, the question, and and, yeah. like, Night Owl is obviously based on, like, Batman. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I... If anything, to me, that actually makes Watchmen a little bit more effective as a speculative work because it kind of... In a way, it almost brings, like, parody into the spectrum as well uh, because it's just so, um, you know, like... You can you can see the comedian as like other things. You can like like you said you can see Night Owl and Rorschach as like other characters, but they're in this and they're reimagined as these kind of like Rorschach is a very monstrous presence. He has kind of like that he you know like he he's like Batman in the way that he's a vigilante, but he isn't like him in the way that he's literally willing to do anything he can to get down to like the mystery of the book and he he does some really awful shit yeah and like he like obviously like ozymandias's like plan is obviously very like evil and very um inconsiderate of like civilian life but like he like he like talks about like how monstrous it is but like earlier in the book he find out like as a child he like specifically admired like uh harry truman for like okaying like the bombing of like hiroshima and nagasaki right oh yeah he did put that in yeah that was which was yeah yeah that was watchman's so good (laughs) yeah um yeah and i yeah i guess that the dc thing is very interesting where he wanted to use other characters i did not know that Yet, like I said, realizing that just honestly makes the almost parody satire of Watchmen work even better. 
honestly, yeah. I would say. Um, you know what doesn't work that well is like, um, I don't know if you've read about a Doomsday Clock, but it was like the the DC like Watchmen crossover comic series, <laughs> which was. Oh. Like, I'd say the I'd say the HBO show is definitely a much better continuation than like the whole like Doomsday Clock arc for sure. Okay. But. How did the Do you know how fans um, received the Doomsday Clock arc? Did that go over like a lead balloon? Um, I think the people that like uh, digest like uh, digested like. Watchmen, like on face value, especially like the, especially like the people that like um really like like the Zack Snyder adaptation, really enjoyed it. But um, I think a lot of the people that were like really fans of like the metaphor and everything and like the original graphic novel weren't as fond of it. Um, the it's almost. It's almost a little too too optimistic that it doesn't get like some of the more like cynical aspects of it and like the HBO show definitely has a bit more of an optimistic tone too but it definitely embraces like a lot of the cynicism that Alan Moore had too for sure. Yeah. Like in the, in the HBO show, like, um, uh, the, there's this, uh, splinter of the KKK that ends up, like, uh, adopting, like, uh, Rorschach's mask as, like, a signature, which is really interesting. Yeah. And uh, you could argue that Rorschach might might not have been like a racist or whatever, but he was definitely like a pretty like hyper nationalistic in a lot of ways. And yeah, for sure. I mean, like they they go they go like super super out of the way to show how like messed up his childhood was. Um, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess like. I obviously I don't speak for all sorts of experiences like that, but yeah, like people, people can slip 
into doing horrible things because of like you know like personal experiences and tribulations that they've put through and honestly yeah i can see like nationalism being a product of that especially with like the way that warshack was raised mm-hmm. um and uh yeah wow that is actually a really really good like way to i mean even that is like kind of speculation on speculation in a way mm-hmm. too because that's a I don't know. That's a that's a smart what if to the original Watchmen. I should watch that. I should watch that and reread Watchmen. <laughs> um, you said it was on HBO, I think. Uh, yeah, but I think you can. Uh, I think you can uh, buy like the whole season separate of HBO on Prime too. Gotcha. Don't quote okay. me on that, but I think you could. <laughs> Well, you said what if there's the new uh, what if Marvel show <laughs> on like a yeah, Disney Plus right. or whatever, which is kind of interesting. I mean, I know that the the weirdest part that I had heard of that like them incorporating into uh, that show was one of the weirdest Marvel arcs that has ever been done, which is Marvel Zombies, and um, it's literally just like. It's not even just, like, the general population, but, like, Marvel Zombies was, like, a plague of all of the Marvel Universe characters becoming zombies and attacking yeah. everybody. And I think one of the main characters, I don't know why they chose this, but it was funny that they actually brought uh, Howard the Duck back to be one of the protagonists, like, fighting that force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, that was, like... I was surprised at the what if because everybody's just like, oh, the Marvel Avengers and honor, and it's like, I've read I've read parts of zombies and it's really campy and gory and weird and it's it's interesting to bring that to audiences, kind of like how it was. Yeah, I, from what I know, it's probably going to be a much tamer, toned down take on that story for sure. But I would imagine so too. Yeah, because like I just remember there were parts of like Spider-Man like attacking and eating and stuff like that or like I think I think he one of the first things was he bit like Mary Jane and Aunt May or something like that and it's just like wow this is a it's quite the take for the once tame Spider-Man story um but I think that jarring nature of you know completely turning on something on its head can make that kind of speculative stuff work really well too even if it is shock value <laughs> Yeah, not to spoil anything, but, like, the show had, like, uh, one of, like, the major, had, like, an an imagining of, like, what if one of the major villains had become, like, good, which was really interesting. I don't really want to spoil who that is, but it's... I'm going to look that up, but for the listener's sake, I'm not, I won't look it up on the podcast. I can also message you later who it is too okay, but cool. um, um marvel stuff isn't my favorite thing but i think it's fun still and i'm glad that 
there's been a bigger embracing of like you know gen like just general like science fiction of all kinds i was very happy when black panther got because like a lot a lot of people like yeah it was also like probably like the the one of the first like big like uh mainstream like uh black superhero movies to to do so well because like um it's not like there has haven't been other like black superhero movies that have come out but they don't usually break even usually yeah there's kind of a unfortunately like with hollywood i'm sure there's still kind of a racist bias against that um and this is coming from me who grew up watching blade um i love the shit out of blade Mm -hmm. um and uh yeah i was kind of i mean like even as a child i had a very very sheltered white like privileged like childhood and stuff like that so like for me it was it was more interesting because i didn't see a lot of like especially like black characters and like stuff that i liked and like i was just like even at the time i'm like hmm something is afoot here because i i love blade and i don't know why there aren't other like heroes like him and then i kind of grew up and understand understood like racism and bias and you know just like more about the push especially with media about like what sells versus like what the kind of stories that people want but i think that's another reason why i was so happy that black panther was successful is because it Mm -hmm. seemed like it was a story that a lot of people wanted to like experience and hear and see and stuff like that um yeah but it's yeah that's good Watch Blade, it's great. Um, sorry, go ahead. I don't know if they're remaking Blade or not, though, is the only thing. They are. There is going to be a new Blade movie. It's, um, uh... (laughs) No, but it's going to be Mahershala Ali, so I'm... Okay. I'm, uh... I'm cautiously optimistic. It's... Um... I, it's kind of confusing though because like Mahershala Ali has technically already been in like that whole like Marvel Cinematic Universe because he was in that Luke Cage show on. Oh, was he? Oh, that's right. He worked Luke Cage. Yeah. He was one of the bad guys. Yeah. But. Jessica Jones and Daredevil were like pretty big for a while. Like I remember people who loved the Daredevil show. Apparently um, they might not be canon anymore, which is really kind of shitty, but that smells like Disney, but yes, it is shitty. <laughs> um I the Iron Fish show was pretty hot garbage, but um Jessica Jones, um <laughs> uh Luke Cage yeah, but uh, Jessica Jones, uh, the Punisher, Luke Cage, 
Daredevil, they were all pretty good. So yeah. yeah um, but I don't I don't see the Punisher coming back anytime soon to Disney owned Marvel, but <laughs> Yeah. I was gonna say especially with that. Um, apparently apparently Deadpool is gonna be in the MCU, but I don't see how they're not gonna like completely neuter him. Yeah, I was gonna say they would. They, I mean, just because people liked the raunchy, obnoxious, like kind of like really in your face humor of the Deadpool movies, and that was really, really appealing to people. I think the Deadpool movies are really funny myself. Um, but yeah, I couldn't imagine that he wouldn't. There's no way that he wouldn't be super, super toned down by. Disney, and that's unfortunate. But um, interesting. Okay, I'll have to watch for that. Okay. Uh, the last thing I kind of want to talk about, and then we can uh, sign off because I feel like we could talk about this forever. But um, uh, the I kind of wanted to talk about like the whole like um, speculative stuff that. Uh, Tarantino has put out in some of his movies. I yeah. think that's kind of interesting. Uh, you go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, it's all good. I remember when I was uh, <laughs> when I was younger, probably too young to watch it, but I watched *Inglorious Bastards*, and um, you know that has a. Should I spoil that, or is that? I, I it's spoiled? it's a pretty old movie, so well, okay. Well, yeah, they they blow Hitler's face open in that movie. Uh Um, And I read read a post basically explaining how the other, like, Quentin Tarantino movies after that kind of are their own, like, uniquely American story timeline because of the violence in his movies. And um, people... In, in the context of the quote-unquote T- Quentin Tarantino universe, um, the, like, people with, like, people saw the press, they saw Americans killed Hitler and stuff like that, and that kind of, like, made this, like, this, like, hyper-violent, hyper-American, like, Quentin Tarantino-verse that is prevalent in Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill, etc., etc., mm-hmm. um, and I thought that was very interesting because that was an unexpected ending for me. <laughs> yeah, um, the definitely a big, big thing for me too was um, all of uh, Django Unchained. I think there's definitely some. I love Django Unchained. Yeah, it's great. It's I think it's my favorite movie of his. But um, yeah, it's really good. I haven't watched that for a while either. I love that movie. But. Um, the specul the speculative stuff in there is really interesting, especially like the whole idea of like uh, um this reimagining of like the whole like uh, cowboy myth in like um the American zeitgeist because like mm-hmm. yeah. historically um cowboys were pretty pretty multiracial like there were a lot of like uh latino cowboys especially mexicans um a lot of black cowboys a lot of native american cowboys and there were a lot of white cowboys too but like for the longest time you were only seeing white cowboys and and 
Yeah, I think that's like it's it's definitely I would say definitely for older movies like John Wayne movies and like The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which are very like very popular and which Quentin Tarantino was obviously influenced by um, as well. Um, but yeah, that that was kind of like a very very like big pop culture icon thing of like the white male American like I am a like a like a loose cannon badass but also like an upstanding citizen and that kind of became very permeated and like cowboy for sure well yeah and also kind of bringing like a figure like that like kind of like a avenging anti-hero to like the the um antebellum south is really mm-hmm. interesting yeah. too and like uh kind of showing like how like gross and like like depraved a lot of the antebellum south really was and how like some people worship it but they were like they they were uh forcing people to forcing slaves to fight uh um sexually assaulting slaves and like uh just yeah. like yeah i mean like you know like django now that we're now that we've like mentioned those things too it's kind of a i mean like it's a good story because it's kind of a microcosm of those things a little bit too and it kind mm-hmm. of like blends everything together and kind of compacts them into this cool revenge boom boom blood and gore story um <clears throat> Yeah, <laughs> I I hadn't really thought about that, but I also haven't watched Django for a while. But yeah, I'm glad that we brought that up. Um, and then there's uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Did you watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I have actually not seen that movie, but we can talk about it still. I just remember the main thing that I had seen from it is that... Uh, yeah, it was Bruce Lee's daughter. Bruce Lee's daughter was kind of like don't really like the way you portrayed my dad in that movie <laughs> that is that's pretty much what i had heard but it was yeah i don't know yeah. i saw it got a lot of praise yeah there there's a whole like there's definitely uh i think she definitely had some uh right to be upset about the portrayal there and he he said uh he said she did too he's saying like he doesn't think other people should, but maybe his children should. I think. I I think there's definitely some things Tarantino has said and done that I definitely don't agree with. I definitely don't. I definitely don't agree with him uh, using like the the N word so like uh, profusely as like a white director, but um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the whole thing with like once upon a time in hollywood there's like um again if you haven't seen it i don't want to spoil it completely but um okay there's definitely uh there's definitely like an alternate history aspect to it too which is okay pretty interesting um well i mean like with the whole like I mean, that's kind of what I've noticed about, like, Quentin Tarantino's movies, that they're very, like, 
American movies. Like, they're very much about, like, American, like, ideas and, like, history and that kind of stuff, too. And, like, what it, what is bigger and more pervasive to, like, you know, American media and that than Hollywood? Mm-hmm. So, like, he... I can... I definitely, like, get... Like, based on us talking about Django and Glorious Bastards, how he would definitely write a movie about, like, hey, think about this. Okay, speculate. Okay, I, that may have sold me on watching that movie. I just, I need to catch up on a lot of movies. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a pretty long movie, too, so it's, mm. I'd say it's definitely something, if you watch it, you should set some time aside for it but um yeah yeah okay um i guess uh we we can uh close out do you want do you have like any other like uh recommendations for people as far as like Honestly, I, for everybody, just in general, I would just encourage you to, like, go out and explore, like, Google. There, There's so much good fiction and good movies and good everything that just, like, thinks that were made by a lot of really, really talented people throughout all of history. Um, I mean, just, yeah, just look at satire. Look at... Uh, why not like George Orwell? Look at, look at, and think about time periods, and then what people were saying and who those people were. Time periods and that mm-hmm. notes for fiction that's going to get written in the future too. Yeah, I don't know. Read Margaret Atwood. Read George Orwell. Read um, Matthew Roth. That's I think yeah. I yeah. Think I did. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's there's a lot to there's a lot to explore that is very prescient and very good that will. It, I mean, since we are a leftist podcast, a lot of that is very much like freedom of thought, freedom of expression, and like you know, kind of anti-fascism as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of a lot of good stories, fictional or otherwise, that are about that. So for sure, I encourage for sure. you to explore. Yeah, I, I'd agree with all of that. Yeah, um, yeah, I'd say uh, Matt Ruff definitely check him out. Uh, another really good book he has is the Mirage, which is an alternate history that um, imagines the geopolitical situation of the Middle East and the United States being switched, which is pretty interesting. Um, and kind that of, is interesting. and kind of like comments on like the war on terror and everything, and like imagines like a, a United States under like a constant like warring faction from like fundamentalist Christian like militant groups and stuff instead of like the Middle East under like um fundamentalist like a Muslim groups and like it imagines like uh the state of israel being like in in like uh western germany and like the conflicts there instead of it like being like a struggle between uh the israeli population and the palestinian population a struggle between like uh 
the the non the non Jewish German population and the Jewish German population. Okay. Which is pretty pretty interesting. Definitely recommend I, that. Um, I think the only other book that I didn't talk about that I think people should read is called The Power by Naomi Alderman, okay. where women develop a new organ on their collarbone, um, very similar to an electric eel, where they can jolt electric currents uh, through their hands, and that changes history. Um, oh, yeah, there's I'm a... Not, not a fan of the ending, but it like that is about as speculative as you can get. It's like hard speculative fiction. I forget the name of the book and the author. I can always talk bring it up later on like the next episode we do or whatever but there this novel i read it's like a speculative history novel like um the you know like how like um thomas edison he did those like um elect electricity experiments on animals to like discredit like george westinghouse or whatever it like imagines like these women that end up like having like a like a psychic connection with like some of the elephants he did the experiments on which is oh that's cool really interesting i'm getting so many good recommendations (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah i'll definitely look into that and uh what it was called bring that up later um this was a good one. I liked yeah. talking about this. This a lot. is a really good one. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a long one, but it's really good. Um, yeah. We have a, we have a Twitter now. If anybody's on Twitter, um, Capital City Comrades. I've mainly been uh, retweeting stuff or like getting people pumped for like new episodes we're doing. But I'll definitely be posting this episode and future episodes on there so yeah check that out it's good to be back it's good to do this again after a very very difficult mental health three months i would say three months for me personally yeah so yeah i don't know i'm glad to be back in the back in the podcast saddle again yeah and we'll have our other two co-hosts uh uh, Julia and uh, James on shortly, probably next month, and we will be doing, I don't know, it's either going to be a two-part or a three-part series on like YouTube and how it affected us personally and how it's like affected culture and like the culture all around that. So that yep. should be exciting, but Until then, uh, we're going to sign off. Uh, Thank you so much for listening, and have a great night. Good night. Night. Bye now.